Welcome to this peer voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash SCM. This program has been supported by an independent educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Welcome to this peer voice activity on the management of metastatic triple negative breast cancer. This activity comprises three presentations featuring a panel of international experts. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hi, I'm Joyce O'Shaughnessy from Baylor University Medical Center, Texas Oncology, and U.S. Oncology in Dallas, Texas. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this activity entitled Question Time, Applying New Therapies for the Management of Metastatic Triple Negative breast cancer. And joining me in this discussion are my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Sarah Tulaney from the Harvard Medical School, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Professor Fabrice André from Institute Gustave Roussy in Paris, France. So it's a great pleasure to be here with you all today. And today we're going to be discussing the current status from a practical standpoint of the management of metastatic triple negative breast cancer, incorporating new data into our practices as the data continue to rapidly um, evolve. And to set the stage, I'm gonna take just a couple of minutes to just reflect on where are we now in the management of metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Well, we certainly know that unfortunately, still stage for stage, triple negative breast cancer has a worse outcome than the other subtypes. And particularly in stage four metastatic TMBC with median survival of only about a year, it's really one of our most virulent and unfortunately highly lethal breast cancer. So we have great unmet need in metastatic TMBC. Of course, the major goal is to prevent metastatic TMBC by, by having better therapies in the curative setting, but nonetheless still I would venture about 25 to 30% of patients will still suffer recurrence uh, when develop metastatic TMBC and die of their um, disease. Now, fortunately, over the last several years, we have multiple new targets that are beginning to redefine TMBC into different subsets. We know it's a highly heterogeneous disease. You know, for example, for metastatic disease in particular, finding uh, PDL1 as a target. Of course, PARP is a target in germline BRCA1 or 2 patients. We know that AKT may be an important target. And then we have novel antibody drug conjugates that are we, we're going to be discussing today that are targeting trope 2 or a low expression of HER2 that can really deliver very powerful cytotoxic payloads. You know, we're also interested in strategies that increase HRD, that increase the immunogenicity of TMBC, such as the CDK4-6 inhibitor trilocyclib. We're interested in the androgen receptor still, as we think an important target in a subset of patients with TMBC. So we have a number of targets that either have already yielded good um, improvements in outcome for patients, but we also have a number of other ones that are very actively um, being pursued. So just to touch 
on a little bit of data that are informing our practice now relatively recently. And we had seen an important survival advantage with the addition of atezolizumab to nabpaclitaxel in pdl one positive patients in the first-line metastatic TMBC setting in the Impassion 130 trial. It was about a seven-and-a-half-month improvement in median overall survival. That was an important uh, step forward. Unfortunately, the follow-on study in Passion 131 did not corroborate that survival advantage seen with nabpaclitaxel plus atezolizumab and the combination of paclitaxel and atezolizumab did not show an overall survival advantage either in the intent to treat population nor in the pdl one positive population. So we're going to talk here with the our experts, um, Dr. Tulaney and Professor Andre, about their thoughts about atezolizumab with nabpaclitaxel. Fortunately, we have seen that the Keynote 355 trial in pdl one positive patients with a combined positive score 10 or more has a seven-month improvement in overall survival in the first-line setting, metastatic TMBC, combining pembrolizumab with physician's choice of chemotherapy, either paclitaxel, nabpaclitaxel, or gemcitabine carboplatin. So we do have an example now of a second uh, a checkpoint inhibitor that is improving survival in the uh, first-line setting. So we're going to talk here about how to integrate these data into our practice. We also have seen important therapeutic advantages for our germline BRCA1 or 2 patients and also some data, small amount so far, for germline PALB2 patients utilizing the PARP inhibitors Olaparib and Talazoprib. So far, our data are in the later line setting. We see an improvement in progression-free survival but not overall survival. There are hints that earlier utilization of the PARP inhibitors earlier in the course of metastatic disease may favorably impact survival. So we're going to talk about PARP inhibitors and how are we from a practical standpoint utilizing PARP inhibitors in our germline uh, patients. And then we really will spend a little bit of time talking about the antibody drug conjugate sasituzumab govotecan, which has been shown to improve overall survival in the uh, second and later line setting in metastatic TMBC. We do not have to select patients on the basis of trope 2 staining because it's a pretty ubiquitously expressed antigen, the trope 2, with the toparisomerase 1 payload, SN38, has a bystander effect and can kill neighboring cells that have much less or no uh, trope 2 expression. We have seen very important six-month improvement in overall survival, and this has become a very important agent in our practice. But we also now need to also incorporate the new data in the HER2 low population. Now we have trastuzumab deruxtecan with patients in Destiny Breast 04 that did show a very significant improvement in progression-free survival uh, and overall survival, albeit in a very small number of patients. So how are we going to incorporate trastuzumab deruxtecan into our uh, our daily practices as well? So that's just a little bit of background on some of the newest data on the agents that are fairly new to our practice that we need to now incorporate and use optimally uh, for our patients. Hi, I'm Joyce O'Shaughnessy from Baylor University Medical Center, Texas Oncology and U.S. Oncology in Dallas, Texas, 
And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this activity entitled Question Time, Applying New Therapies for the Management of Metastatic Triple Negative Breast Cancer. And joining me in this discussion are my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Sarah Tulaney from the Harvard Medical School, Dana Faber Cancer Institute, and Professor Fabrice André from Institut Gustave Roussy in Paris, France. And I'd like to turn us to first consider immunotherapy strategies and how do we optimize our use of um, checkpoint inhibitors in metastatic TMBC. And so, of course, I'd like to ask um, Fabrice the difficult question, and Fabrice is very uh, close. He was a, um, a major investigator in, in Passion um, 131, Paclitaxel, and Atezolizumab, which unfortunately did not show a survival advantage. And Fabrice, what's your take on 131. I know atezolizumab is in Europe. It's an option for patients. And so how are you thinking about the use of atezolizumab in metastatic TMBC? Thank you, Joyce. Uh, so I think let's, let's discuss uh, first, before entering into detail, the first question, should a patient presenting a metastatic triple negative breast cancer with pdl one expression receive an immunotherapeutics? I think we all agree the answer is yes. And so first, very important to, to tell to our colleague, a patient PD-L1 positive metastatic TNBC first line must receive an anti-PD-1 or anti-PD-L1. Then, should it be pembrolizumab or atezolizumab? Of course, as always, we are here to do the best for patients. We will always favor a drug where there are more compelling evidence. So, of course, the finding that there is one negative study with atezolizumab in daily practice does not go in favor of this drug versus uh, pembrolizumab. We always want to de-risk uh, the likelihood of failure for the patient. Then, in patient 131, it's fair to say, Joyce, that the last update of the study, there was a decrease of the hazard ratio that was a significant in favor of atezolizumab. My Take-home message is very simple, but I think it's just a question of lack of statistical chance. And we all know that when we do trial, some can be 0.50 hazard ratio, and sometimes some can be 0.70. I'm not sure if we compare the hazard ratio between all studies that the hazard ratio will be different between studies. You know what I mean? So I would not go, I would not massively overinterpret uh, the difference between trials, but Indeed, because I'm here to help patients, I would go to the drug that seems to be uh, having more compelling evidence that is pembrolizumab. Thank you. Yeah, I agree with you. There's so many variations among trials and cross-trial comparisons are so, so difficult. And there are many, many differences between 130 and 131 that may have accounted for the differences because we do see excellent efficacy with paclitaxel and nabpaclitaxel and pembrolizumab. There's just not a difference there. And so why should there be with Atezo? And Sarah, I don't know if you have any other takes on that. And you know, what about in the US, Atezo versus Pembro? And also, could you just say a few words about um, testing for PDL1, you know, some guidance for us about what the best strategy is there? I think um, certainly Fabrice's take-home message is the key one, that checkpoint inhibition and chemotherapy is certainly a standard in the PDL1 positive first-line metastatic triple negative setting. Um, but where, you know, as to this issue about atezolizumab versus pembrolizumab, 
I also agree with Fabrice that in, in my mind, I think this was bad luck um, because you know, in Impassion 131, they used a two-to-one randomization, and so the number of patients in the control arm is small, and when you then look at the pdl one positive patients, it gets smaller, and you look at the performance of that control arm was honestly something we'd never seen before with OS of about 28 months uh, with upfront paclitaxel, and it just makes you think that this was a bit of bad luck, that it was an outperforming control arm, uh, likely in a small number of patients. Um, you know, I don't truthfully think there's probably a big difference between the checkpoint inhibitors. If you look at the survival difference in Impassion 130 with a delta of around seven months, it's interesting. It's about the same delta in Keynote 355 for survival, right? So it, it just goes to show you that these trial designs are tricky, right? That hierarchical analysis used in 130 was, you know, designed at a time when we didn't really know PDL1 was a biomarker, and so. As Fabrice was noting, you know, these trial designs can have unfortunate, you know, outcome implications, um, which I think impacted 130 and 131. Um, and so unfortunately in the U.S. we don't have the option to use atezolizumab once the 131 results came out since it didn't confirm uh, the approval based on 130. Um, and so in the U.S., for testing for PDL1, um, you know, we are really utilizing the 22C3 antibody and then using this combined positive score or CPS score uh, and selecting patients for pembrolizumab if they have a PDL1 CPS greater than or equal to 10 based on this 22C3 antibody. I will say it is a bit of a mess though, because prior to um, pembrolizumab being our standard, we were using SP142 to select patients for atezolizumab using an IC score greater than or equal to one. And I think the challenge is that different institutions have validated different antibodies, um, and not every institution has all these antibodies to test uh, tissue with, and the problem is that there isn't great concordance between these tests. So if you test someone with SP142, I see greater than one as your cutoff, and you looked at what's the overlap with 22C3, CPS greater than or equal to 10, you'll see there is discordance in these tests. And I think it, it makes it a major challenge. I will say at our own institution, this is a bit of a challenge because we can't do 22C3 in-house. I have to send it out to get it tested. Um, so it is a, a challenge. I, I'm curious, Fabrice, how are you testing uh, in Europe? What, because you have both agents available, what antibody are you using to, to test your patients? I think here, Sarah, I think what is important is to have consistency between the companion diagnosis and the drug we prescribe. So if a drug is developed with a companion diagnostic, we should use this companion diagnostic for, for this specific uh, drug. So CPS usually is more with the uh, uh, pembrolizumab and uh, SP142 uh, with atezolizumab. So usually we try to match compound diagnosis and, uh, and the drug. Yeah, thank you. We do the same. I think it's a really, really good point because I think you'll miss about 36% of patients in one series if SP142 is negative and you turn around and do the 22C3, you'll pick up an additional percent that are positive that you would have missed and it can be even up, up to a third of patients. So. But um, thank you. We certainly want to aim these agents at the PDL1 positive uh, group of patients. When um, we asked a group of 30 physicians around oncologists around the world, in Europe, in the US, and Asia, what are the important factors that they consider when recommending first line therapies? Of course, by overwhelming majority, it was long term efficacy. 
Of course, that's going to play into what was their previous therapy guideline recommendations, quality of life, germline BRCA status, tolerability, um, et cetera. And these, are, these really are spot on, I think, for what we would all um, resonate uh, with here. And then asking these same oncologists, you know, what's their rationale for using checkpoint inhibitors in the first line setting? It was um, improvement in progression-free survival and, of course, improvement in overall survival. And, of course, the, the endorsement of, of the guidelines for utilization of these um, agents uh, as well. So the checkpoint inhibitors are really critically important in our first-line metastatic TMBC population because of the overall survival improvement in general, but also the very intriguing increased higher tail on that curve with some patients really going out a long period of time on the checkpoint uh, inhibitors. But of course, we've got to be able to manage toxicities in order for patients to benefit. So Sarah, let me just ask you, what are the main toxicities we need to watch out for with checkpoint inhibitors in the metastatic setting? Thanks, Joyce. Um, you know, I think uh, in breast oncology, we were a little bit behind in getting used to uh, checkpoint inhibitors and managing the toxicities. I think the things that we're most commonly seeing are very mild fatigue, sometimes some arthralgias. But then the things that I get more concerned about are more um, issues with inflammation in different organs. Um, so sometimes we can get these almost autoimmune-like reactions. Uh, the most common thing that we do see uh, in our patients with checkpoint inhibitors is thyroiditis, uh, with about 15 to 20% of women uh, experiencing hypothyroidism in the end uh, while on these treatments. And so it is quite important to make sure that you are monitoring a TSH um, routinely uh, and refluxing for free T4 as needed in these patients because a, a good number of them are going to end up with thyroiditis, sometimes initially hyperthyroid and then hypo, and, and sometimes initially upfront hypothyroidism. So very important to monitor for. Other things I keep in mind are adrenal insufficiency, which sometimes can occur and I think is a little more tricky uh, to diagnose because the symptoms you know, can be things like fatigue, which people can be experiencing from chemotherapy otherwise. Um, but checking an AM cortisol in that case can be helpful and then doing um, a court stim test if needed uh, for further workup is very important. Um, and then the other side effects are more rare, things like um, colitis, hepatitis, pneumonitis. Uh, and you know, in truth, I have gotten my um, specialty colleagues involved when some of these things uh, arise, like you know, concern for uh, diarrhea. I often will send them to a gastroenterologist to get scoped to see if they do have uh, immune-related colitis because it's hard to know for certain when people present with diarrhea if it's, again, the chemotherapy or something else or really the, the um, inflammation from checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Uh, fortunately, many people respond very well to steroid therapy uh, and holding of checkpoint inhibition. Um, and then it's a challenge to decide which patients can be rechallenged with the checkpoint inhibitor or not. Uh, and again, very important to have these discussions with your specialty colleagues when, when making those decisions. Yeah, we we're coming up to speed. We we breast cancer docs on on this, but it's we're I think we're there. I think we're 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 involved. Um, Fabrice, what's been your experience in the metastatic setting with the checkpoint inhibitor related um, toxicities? I think Joyce, I, I fully agree with Sarah. Uh, first, we have to keep in mind we we always combine them with chemotherapy. So most of the side effects are related to chemotherapy. So the most important is to be able to pick up among the side effects, which one are related to the, the immunotherapeutics. Again, being able to detect the hypothyroidism is important. Uh, have a network of colleagues 
who have expertise in internal medicine is absolutely crucial to manage patients under immunotherapeutics. And we have to be uh, very careful because it looks like there are uh, non-toxic treatment. You know, in my experience, like many other colleagues, I have one patient who died uh, or, 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 uh, of toxicity of uh, anti-PD-1 antibodies. So it's really important all the breast oncologists be aware that that can happen and they have to monitor very close, closely the toxicity uh, of their patients. Yeah, I basically um, have told the patients that these toxicities can prevent, present in all different kinds of funny ways and we just need to know about things. I just have a, le a low threshold for scanning and trying to diagnose. Some of this can be challenging. So getting our colleagues involved if there's a question about a particular organ, but just really having the patients make sure they let us know anything funny that's going on so we can, um, we can look, look into it sooner than later. So that's my main thing is I have a low threshold for diagnostic tests. Just to summarize, a lot of consensus around knowing the pdl one status of our patients' cancers in the first line metastatic TMBC setting using the antibody that is the companion diagnostic for the agent we're going to recommend for the patient of pdl one positive um, more use of pembrolizumab exclusively in the U.S., uh, but also in, 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 at least in uh, Fabrice's practice um, in uh, Europe with regard to the Keynote 355 trial, um, having the overall survival uh, advantage. So thank you uh, guys very much for that. And I'd like to just move us to look at antibody drug conjugates. Hello, this is Joyce O'Shaughnessy from Baylor University Medical Center, Texas Oncology, and U.S. Oncology in Dallas, Texas, and welcome to this activity entitled Question Time, Applying New Therapies for the Management of Metastatic Triple Negative Breast Cancer. Joining me in the discussion today are my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Sarah Tulaney from Harvard Medical School and the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in the U.S., and Dr. Fabrice André from the Institute Gustave Roussy in France. Very happy to be here with them here today. In the last part, we will answer your questions about targeted therapy strategies and about translating current data for approved targeted therapies into clinical practice and optimizing management and outcome of our patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. We'll pivot a little bit here to look at, talk about PARP inhibitors for a moment in your metastatic TMBC. Of course, we use them in other patients that have metastatic HR-positive HER2-negative disease, or now in the high-risk adjuvant setting, we use Olaparib as well. But in the metastatic TMBC population, um, we will, of course, try to check for germline BRCA status, um, either in the curative setting or as soon as patients are diagnosed with metastatic disease. But how do you utilize the PARP inhibitors? And then the thorny question, if a patient's breast cancer is pdl one positive and she is germline BRCA positive, how do you approach her treatments? Yeah, no, thanks, Joyce. I mean, it's wonderful that we have the opportunity to use these oral PARP inhibitors in our patients with germline BRCA mutations. We know that they perform better than standard chemotherapy with an improvement in progression-free survival with a delta of about three months, and also better quality of life with PARP inhibitors compared to standard chemotherapy. And so generally, I, I do, as you suggested, test all my metastatic uh, patients uh, for germline BRCA status to know if they'd be a candidate for PARP. 
And, but then when I sequence them depends, you know, as you're alluding to on a bunch of factors. So for example, if someone had a PDL1 positive metastatic triple negative uh, breast cancer but was also germline BRCA mutant, I would think about using chemotherapy and checkpoint inhibition first in that particular setting because we know that checkpoint inhibition is associated with survival benefit and that benefit is really only obtained in the first line setting. Whereas for PARP inhibition, we know that there's a progression-free survival benefit relative to standard chemo, but no survival benefit. And the PFS benefit was seen even in the subsequent lines of therapy, um, both in uh, the Olympiad as well as the Embraca trials. And so usually, again, I'll sequence chemo checkpoint followed by PARP in a um, PDL1 positive uh, germline BRCA mutant, but if they were PDL1 negative, I then might consider a PARP inhibitor as monotherapy in the upfront setting. I fully agree with, with Sarah. First, anti PD1, and then uh, when there is progressive disease, a PARP inhibitor, but we all expect soon having the result of the combination between the two and see if we further improve the, the long term survival with this uh, combination. Yeah, thank you. I was reminding of the, the Keylink 009 trial, which fortunately is not just in germline BRCA patients, it's metastatic TMBC. If they're responding to gemcitabine, carboplatin, and pembrolizumab, then they're randomized to continue same or to switch over to Olaparib plus pembrolizumab as a maintenance strategy. That's a very interesting trial that I think will hopefully have a lot of good clinical um, utility. So thank you both very much for that. Well, now I'd like to move us to a discussion of antibody drug conjugates, which have been a really welcome and non-cross-resistant therapeutic strategy for our patients with metastatic um, TMBC. And again, we went out to the 30 oncologists around the world and, and asked them, you know, how do they incorporate the ADCs into their therapies? And this was before the plenary session at ASCO, and so we were really talking about sasituzumab, and and basically it's the second and the third line setting for metastatic TMBC where the oncologists are, are incorporating sasituzumab. I know for myself I would say that I use it as soon as I can. Basically, it's really highly non-cross-resistant, and our patients get treated with so many agents in the curative setting by the time they develop metastatic disease, we, they really need something highly non-cross-resistant. So I use it as soon as I possibly can in the um, metastatic TMBC journey, which is usually second line. I wanted to ask both of you, you know, given the survival advantage and the ascent trial that was fully focused on metastatic TMBC patients um, with sasituzumab, and now we have this small subset in Destiny Breast 04 uh, that is very provocative in the metastatic TMBC population, but indeed is a small group of patients with HER2 1 or 2 plus non-amplified. How do you utilize these agents? And I know we're just beginning to incorporate the trastuzumab deruxtecan now in the HER2 low population, but maybe you could say a few words about how you've been utilizing sasituzumab and what thoughts you're beginning to give to trastuzumab deruxtecan. So maybe I'll ask um, Fabrice. So uh, thank you, Joe. So first, it's important to say we are very lucky to have two new drugs and even more in the near future uh, in the context of a new class that are antibody drug uh, conjugate. So far, sasituzumab govitecan is a little bit ahead because we had the result 
uh, well, quite a long time ago, and it's important patients have access uh, to this drug uh, in the context of second, third line uh, metastatic triple negative breast cancer, and as you mentioned, without uh, uh, so far uh, biomarker selection because uh, TROP2 is widely uh, expressed in uh, triple negative breast cancer. Now we have a new ADC that is Trastuzumab Deluxtecan with, uh, as you mentioned, Destiny 04, where the, most of the patients were uh, estrogen receptor positive, uh, metastatic breast cancer, few subset triple negative uh, breast cancer. I think right now we are going to, to prescribe uh, Sastuzumab Govitecan in the near future, let's see where uh, the trastuzumab deluxe can land because there are also many other uh, trials ongoing and we will see uh, in the near future. So, so, so far in Europe, we don't have the question because uh, we don't have access yet to this uh, drug in the context of Hertulo. Thanks, um, Fabrice. And how about you, Sarah? And do you think that they may both end up potentially working for patients if we eventually have the opportunity to give them sequentially? Yeah, no, it's a really good question. I'll say that um, we've had some debates about this internally in our group as well, because you know it is a, a, a good question for the you know 30, 40 percent of our metastatic triple negative breast cancer patients who are HER2 low. How do you optimally think about choosing um, order of therapy with sasituzumab or TDXD? And you know, I think the point was a, a fair one that this was there were only 58 patients in the triple negative subgroup of Destiny Breast 04. But what is pretty remarkable is that the data is very consistent. Um, like if you look at the hormone receptor positive patients, the response rate was 50%. If you look at the triple negative patients, the response rate is also 50%. So the benefit was seen sort of irrespective of subtype. And in both groups, although again, be it exploratory and triple negative, and the benefits in terms of PFS improvement are, are really striking as, with, as well as the OS. And so it does beg the question, which agent would be better? And we don't know because it's not fair to cross-trial compare with a, a tiny cohort uh, in DBO4, um, but it is very provocative. And you know, I don't know that right now there's a right or right wrong answer. I think most people would probably choose sastatuzumab first simply because it's based on clear OS benefit in a phase three trial. Uh, but, you know, it, it does make you wonder. And I think your question about sequencing is important because both of these ADCs have a TOPO1 payload. So sasituzumab having SN38 and TDXD having Durextican. And we don't really understand how these ADCs will work one another after one another. They have different targets, but payloads that are fairly similar. Uh, and so it will be an important question. You know, we saw some data that I thought was interesting. If you looked at the Dato DXD data, so that was you know a different ADC uh, with Dato DXD targeting trope two, but having a topo one payload. There were some patients in that trial that had seen prior sasituzumab that actually still had tumor reduction. With one of those patients actually achieving PR meaning that in a, when they sequenced an ADC that had the same target and fairly similar payloads, 
you were seeing benefit in some of those patients. And so I think it goes to show you we don't really understand ADC resistance that well. We don't understand sequencing and we need more data. Um, I think I would try sequencing them uh, and we'll have to see you know, what, what happens, but nice to have um, all these options for our patients to choose from. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think it'll be very interesting if we find, for example, that with TDXD that one method of resistance is loss of HER2 uh, or decrease of HER2, then maybe trope 2 will become even more expressed, you know, for example, and we could go after the cells that way. We'll have to wait and see. We certainly need more data, but I, I concur with both of you. I think sasituzumab has been a very become a very important fabric of our treatment. As I said, I go to it as soon as I can in metastatic TMBC, but I am intrigued with the, um, the TDXD data. We'll certainly get more data from um, other other TDXD trials that are currently um, ongoing. I think one that's very interesting, isn't it, is the um, Begonia trial, you know, combining the TDXD with the checkpoint inhibitor Dervalumab. You know, the early phase one, two data look very, very promising from the, uh, the, the Begonia, that's first line metastatic uh, TMBC. So that'll be really an interesting strategy. And it was regardless of pd one status too, which is really, really quite um, interesting. Let's talk a little bit about toxicities of management of uh, sasituzumab. Uh, we also have trastuzumab deruxtecan, the other really excellent antibody drug conjugate, but that's just beginning to start its way into metastatic TMBC. But we have a lot of experience with sasituzumab, which has a six-month improvement in median overall survival and has become a real important stable of our metastatic uh, therapies. And so what toxicities are you mainly seeing or do we mainly need to be aware of, Fabrice, with the, um, with the sasituzumab? So I think, Joyce, the, the toxicity is mostly related to the, what we call the payload, meaning the, the chemotherapy that is attached to the, the antibody. So this is why we see substantial amount of grade four neutropenia. So again, we have to be careful and uh, to monitor this very closely. And we could give GCSF if there is a need. There, there is a little bit of alopecia, not a lot, a uh, little bit. Something that is very important to manage is diarrhea. And we all know that topo one inhibitors, uh, systemic chemotherapy, give diarrhea. So patient treated with a uh, new generation ADC, they can have diarrhea, huh? so, so it's important to give uh, uh, loperamide or all the supportive care that we all know uh, in case the symptom uh, occur. Last point, there is some uh, nausea. It's very viable depending on the ADC, but it's, it can be usual to observe nausea. Again, uh, the treatment is a usual uh, antiemetics that we give for, for chemotherapy. The, the point that is specific is with diarrhea. We have to be careful. This is usual with topo one inhibitor. Thanks, uh, thanks, Fabrice. And how about you, Sarah? What's been your experience so far with the uh, toxicities of sasituzumab? Yeah, no, I think, you know, in, in general, it, is, it has that day one and day eight schedule. I do use some prophylactic antiemetics uh, with therapy, but I actually haven't found that the nausea is such an issue um, with that on board. Instead, I do see the mild fatigue, the intermittent low-grade diarrhea, uh, neutropenia, 
and alopecia as the major issues. And so I will say that in about 50% of my patients, I do end up using growth factor support. Um, I usually don't start off preventatively giving everyone growth factor, but rather wait to see if they experience neutropenia, and if so, uh, then get them on routine growth factor use. And then I don't find that I need to um, have dose delays uh, with therapy, and I'm able to then maintain dose. Um, you know, I think uh, it is important to warn people about the diarrhea, but in truth, I, I find it's very well managed with intermittent loperamide. With alopecia, a lot of our patients have had hair loss already when they come into this drug, but if not, um, important to warn them about it. We do have a trial ongoing actually looking at uh, use of scalp cooling for prevention of ADC-related uh, alopecia, but um, you know, unfortunately, we don't have data yet to, to see if it's actually going to work. With ADC's long half-life, it's hard to know if this is actually going to be a, an effective strategy. Thank you. That's very, very uh, interesting. I totally uh, agree with you all. I try to keep the dose intensity of sasituzumab up at the 10 mg per kg in the beginning with some growth factor support if needed. Not so much that I'm seeing febrile neutropenia or very severe neutropenia. It's more the risk of uh, getting delays, you know, having to skip the day eight or having to postpone the next day one, which I try not to do early on, obviously, because we want to see if we can get response. But I find that once patients have had a good response, a lot of times there there is more fatigue that's a bit cumulative. And so I end up oftentimes going down to 7.5 mg per kg for in a maintenance. And I find very, very good tolerability and excellent durability of response with that kind of a strategy. So I think we've figured out how to use this pretty well so our patients can benefit. And so how do we sequence these? Maybe that's a good way to, to end our discussion here is how do we sequence things? Again, we went to the 30 worldwide oncologists and essentially they're reflecting what we've talked about, which is that if patients have pdl one positive cancer, they're prioritizing checkpoint inhibitor with chemotherapy. If they are pdl one negative, they're by and large getting a variety of chemotherapies, first line metastatic, certainly using PARP inhibitors, either first, second, or third line. And then the ADCs are coming in, the sasituzumab in particular, second line, and also in the third line setting. So I think that reflects what we have been talking about here today. And so also finding out the germline BRCA status of our patients and really knowing that one of the key things we still need to know about patients when they're diagnosed and to utilize the PARP inhibitors as early as is possible in the course of metastatic disease, but giving priority to the checkpoint inhibitors because of the survival impact in those whose breast cancers are pdl one positive, about 40% of patients or so. Well, with that, I'd really like to thank Dr. Tulaney and Professor Andre for being here to discuss these very important topics with us. And I would really very much like to thank you for being here and participating and for your attention. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.